morning. You guys can have a seat. As always, good to see everybody today. Um, are any of you guys out there NBA basketball fans? Anyone like to watch the NBA? Okay, a, f a few of us, yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself the biggest NBA fan, probably because since he doesn't have a team, but <clears throat> I do enjoy uh, NBA when it comes around to playoff time. I feel like the regular season's too long, it's not competitive enough, but when the playoffs come around, I feel like the intensity kind of just goes up to a new level. Um, the playoffs just ended, by the way, congrats to the Golden State Warriors, they won another championship. Um, but I love this, this elevated intensity that I think the players bring when they get into this, uh, you know, win or go home type of environment uh, that the playoffs can bring. And uh, one of my favorite players, uh, LeBron James, has this kind of notorious thing that he goes into called playoff mode. Uh, at least he, he uh, did, I don't know if he still does it, he, I remember him tweeting about it a long time ago, uh, where when the playoffs would start, he would just cut out absolutely everything that could be a distraction from him, uh, for him from basketball. So he gets off social media, he limits the TV, he watches, he doesn't even have a phone uh, during this time. And uh, yeah, like I said, I don't know if he still does this, but he did this back when he won a championship with the Miami Heat uh, in 2013. And I remember hearing about this and really admiring uh, the extra focus that he wanted to put into his work uh, during this period of time. It's not practical or desirable necessarily uh, to live that way 100% of the time, but he understood that there's a time where that extra, even difficult level of devotion was called for in his craft. And uh, he might call this playoff mode, but it actually bears a lot of similarities to a practice that worshipers of God have been engaging in for thousands of years. And this is a practice that we call fasting. And Cass already alluded to that a little bit this morning. That's what I'm going to be talking about. I'm excited to guide you guys through this because I think that this is one of the spiritual disciplines we'll talk about this summer that people are least familiar with. Um, and even maybe if you have some level of familiar, familiarity with it, I think it's certainly one of the least appreciated and least practiced of the spiritual disciplines. I, th I think that's largely because it's misunderstood uh, and undervalued, okay? And uh, I don't say that to, to shame you or anything like that. I think, honestly, it's just something that isn't taught on very often. And even though it is in the Scripture a lot, it's not always extremely clear what exactly it's accomplishing or why it's something uh, that we should do. So my goal this morning is to help shed some light on this ancient practice and to help you see how it's not something that should be avoided at all costs because it's difficult, but rather something that should be responsibly practiced in our pursuit of God. So with that being said, let's pray and I'll dive into what I got this morning. Lord, uh, we love you. And I just thank you that you are a God that's worthy of all of our worship. You are the giver of life. You're the giver of every good thing. I thank you for the fact that uh, you, you change us and mold us into the people you want us to be. I thank you that you're always at work in that. God, I thank you for testimonies that we get to hear like Susie's. And Lord, I pray for our time here this morning as we dive into this uh, practice of fasting that we're looking at as we're trying to figure out, God, just uh, what it is that you've given us, the practices are that you've given us to be able to grow closer to you and to experience the abundant life that you have for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak 
through your word. Speak through me as I guide people and uh, just minister in our hearts and, and help us to come away from this better equipped to be people uh, that really love you and serve you and make an impact on this world. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so I want to start off just by being very clear and defining what I mean when I'm talking about fasting as a spiritual discipline. I'm talking about biblical fasting, which I'm defining in this way. That fasting is the practice of abstaining from something, usually food, for a period of time for the purpose of seeking the Lord. All right, you'll notice a couple things about that definition. First, I want to point out that the purpose of fasting always has to relate back to seeking the Lord in some way. It has to be about Him. Um, fasting or just abstaining from food or, or anything else is not inherently spiritual. It's not inherently something that's going to help you grow in maturity in Christ. Uh, there are lots of people that fast uh, for other reasons. You know, some people fast in order to lose weight or try to detox or something like that. Uh, some people fast as a means of going on a hunger strike to try to accomplish something they want. Uh, some people like LeBron might fast from things like internet and phone and social media to be able to uh, take away distractions from a goal that they want to accomplish. <clears throat> There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these other forms of fasting. They're just not what I'm talking about this morning uh, with regards to fasting as a spiritual discipline. Um, if you are fasting, uh, biblical fasting, the point is you are seeking the Lord and trying to grow closer to him in some manner. All right? Now, um, the purpose of seeking the Lord and the practice is abstaining from something. We see a lot of fasting in the Bible. And uh, in almost every case, what we see people fasting from in the Bible is food. Uh, and we see varying degrees of intensity and time in the scriptures. All right? So I'm just going to go through a few different types of fasts that we see. And the first one I'm going to call is a normal fast. And this is uh, just where you're abstaining from food but not water for a given period of time. Uh, this is in all likelihood the kind of fast that Jesus was doing when he was 40 days in the desert. Uh, it says in Matthew 4, 1-2, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Okay, it doesn't say anything about him becoming thirsty, uh, but over this period of time, it appears that he was not eating, and this was a period of time that the Spirit led him there uh, to be tested and um, to prepare him for this public ministry that would then launch after that, which is most of the info that we have on Jesus in the Bible. Um, with, with most of the time that we see fasting happen in the scriptures, it doesn't give us a ton of extreme detail about what exactly they're abstaining from, uh, but it seems to be implied that it's usually just food and not water. And part of that is because the human body can only go for about three days without water before you'll die, uh, whereas you can go for much, much, much longer than that without food. Now, there are times, though, that we see what I'm going to call a total fast, and that's where you're abstaining from absolutely everything, all kinds of food, and all kinds of drink. Um, this seems to be practiced usually in times that are extremely desperate. All right? We see an example of this in the book of Jonah when the Ninevites uh, were repenting over their sin. Jonah was a prophet that God sent to the city Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. It was a really wicked people full of a lot of sin. And he said, hey, pretty soon God is going to wipe all of you out. They hear this message and respond to it. And this is, this is their response. Says then the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, 
He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Okay, so this is the most intense fast we see in all the Bible. The whole city's fasting so much so that even the animals are not allowed to eat or drink. Um, So every now and then in a time that's extremely desperate, like, hey, Nineveh, we're about to be completely wiped out. Wow, we're going to call a very, very, very extreme fast. Uh, We'll see another example of something similar like that later in the sermon today. And then also there's what what I would call a supernatural fast. And then this is um, the kind of fast that can really only be done with if God works a miracle to be able to make it happen. Um, an example of this would be when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments with God. We, it reads in Deuteronomy 9.9, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So Moses wasn't eating or drinking for 40 days. That is physically impossible outside of a miracle. Uh, It kind of makes sense, though, that if there was ever a time that this was going to happen, it was here, right? Because Moses was where? He was on the mountain with God in the presence of the very giver of life. And so I think that there's actually something cool to be said about how he actually didn't even need to eat or drink at all as he was up there on the mountain uh, receiving the word of God, which is what Jesus would later say that man does not live uh, by bread alone, but by, on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But I would not recommend trying this type of fast, <laughs> okay? Uh, short of the Lord explicitly calling and empowering you to do this, uh, this is not the kind of thing that, that we should be uh, practicing. And then finally, dialing it back quite a bit, uh, there's what we call a partial fast. And uh, this is where you fast from certain kinds of food or drink, but not everything entirely, Okay? So we see that Daniel did this at least once in Daniel 10. Uh, we read verses 2 to 3. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So he's still eating. He's just not eating the good stuff, uh, which he identifies as meat and wine. So see, he's, he's against vegetarianism, I guess. No, totally joking there. But um, anyway, there, there's a certain amount of things that he was fasting from for a period of time, okay? Now, uh, this is different, remember, from doing Whole30 or Keto or Paleo or any of those other kind of things, right? Uh, because in all of those, the goal of, of those partial fasts is health-related. Um, for us, when we're doing biblical fasting, the goal is to Seek the Lord in some manner. And that seems to be what Daniel was doing while he was in this time of mourning. Now you'll notice in that passage that Daniel fasted not only from tasty foods, from meat and wine, uh, but he also uh, fasted from using ointment. He he wasn't putting that on at that time. That's not super surprising given that he was mourning. This is probably a normal practice for people that were in mourning. Uh, But it could give some biblical support to the idea of fasting from something other than food. So today I know uh, a lot of people that will fast from things like social media or TV or internet, and they do it for the purpose of seeking God without those distractions in their lives. Uh, we don't have any really good, extremely solid biblical examples of people fasting from non-food type things, uh, but I do think that this kind of fasting is within the scope 
of what biblical fasting is trying to accomplish. Um, and if done with the right motives, I believe that this kind of fasting can also be very uh, helpful for your spiritual growth. So we have a bit of an understanding of what, what it is, right? There's all these different kinds of uh, things that you can fast from, different amounts of time, different amounts of intensity. But at the end of the day, like, what is the point of all of this kind of stuff? Why is it that this is something that God would call us to do? And I do want to make it clear to you um, that, that I, I believe this is something that God actually wants us to do, even though it's probably neglected um, in our lives. Now, I, I think part of the reason that this is neglected is because we don't see any uh, particular commands in Scripture about frequency or like saying that we have to do this. But I do think that you can read the words of Jesus and see that this was an expectation that his followers would practice this in some way in their lives. Okay, I'll give you an example. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is probably one of the uh, best-known passages on fasting, but Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There's a lot we could say about that passage, but all I want to point out about it right now is look at the language Jesus uses. He says, when you fast. It's implied that there's just an expectation that this is something that his followers would do. Um, in the same chapter, Matthew 6, 2, he says, so when you give to the poor. Matthew 6, 5, he says, when you pray. We all know that as Christians, there's an ongoing expectation that we would be people that pray, that we would be people that give to the poor. Jesus is really treating this topic of fasting in much the same way, just as an expectation that this would be part of the lifestyle of his followers. He also did say explicitly that his followers would fast after he left. He said this in Matthew 9, 14 and 15. Then the disciples, John, came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So John the Baptist holy man, right? Really good dude is pointing the way towards the Lord. His disciples were fasting and they noticed it seems like Jesus' disciples are never fasting. And it was an accurate observation. They weren't. But that wasn't going to be something that was always going to be the case. Jesus is like, right now they're getting to hang out with me. Like, like they're, they're with the bridegroom. They're excited. Things are good. But I, there's a day where I'm going to be taken from them. And in that, they're going to fast. Now you might want to, you might be tempted to very narrowly interpret that as, oh, they'll fast during that really short period between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But I don't think they understood it that way. I think that they understood it as until Jesus comes back the second time, that's how long we're going to continue to have fasting as a practice in our lives. And I say that because we actually see the early church fasting sometimes in the book of Acts. Acts 13.2, for example, says this, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. So we don't see anything in Scripture telling us how frequently we're supposed to fast, anything like that. All we see is that it seems to be an expectation in the lives of, of Christ's followers that on some level it will be a part of our lives. 
I think that you need to seek the Lord and pray and, and try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, maybe get some guidance from others in your lives about how to implement this practice into your life. But I do think that it should be a part of the life of every Christ follower in some capacity. And part of why I say that is because God has a lot of good things that I believe he wants to do in our lives through this fasting, right? With all the spiritual disciplines that we're talking about, uh, we've even titled this series Abundance, right? And the reason is none of these spiritual disciplines are things that save us or, or make us righteous before God or anything like that, but they are things that help us to take hold of the abundant life that God wants to give us, to experience the life that he wants us to have. And so I'm going to give you just five reasons that I see in Scripture for why I believe it's valuable for us to fast, why we might want to do this. And the first has to do with requests. When we're seeking the Lord and his help. You know, this is a major reason that we see people fasting in the Bible. Um, there are some times where you have an intense need that you just desperately need God to come through on. Okay, I'll give you just a few examples biblically. One is uh, in the book of Esther. If you're not familiar with this, uh, in the book of Esther, we're at a time where the Jews had been taken out of their homeland. They're living in a different land at this time called Persia. And uh, the Persian king got mad at his wife, got rid of her as queen, and he searched the land to find a new bride. And this girl named Esther was chosen to be his new bride. Um, now, Esther's a Jew, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't really even know much about who the, he doesn't know much about Jewish customs or anything like that, but she becomes his bride. Well, there's this kind of uh, advisor guy named Haman that absolutely hates the Jews and comes up with this plan to exterminate them and, and gets the king to go along with it. And so when Esther learns of this plan through her uncle uh, Mordecai, Mordecai is encouraging her. He's like, Esther, you need to go before the king and get him to stop this plan or else all of your people are going to be wiped out. And you might think, perfect, like Esther's in the great position. She's literally the queen. She can easily talk to him. But they had a really weird marriage. <laughs> it wasn't exactly uh, the kind of marriage I would hope that you guys have. Uh, as a matter of fact, she wasn't allowed to even come into his presence unless she was explicitly invited. And if she did come into his presence without being explicitly invited, she could be put to death, okay? And that was, not true. That was true not just for her, but for anybody. And so she goes back to Mordecai. She's like, you know that I, I can't do this unless I'm invited. And Mordecai just urges her again. He's like, dude, God's put you in this position for such a time as this. And so finally she realizes, I've got to do this. And, uh, but, but before she does, look at what she asks uh, Mordecai and the rest of her people to do. Esther 4.16. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, that's the city they were in, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right? So she was willing to do it. Praise God, she did. And it all ended up working out. The Jews were saved. And that bad guy that came up with a plan actually ended up getting killed instead. But you notice, like, she realized, man, this is a really, really serious thing. Like, this is literally a do or die kind of thing. And I need my people to be fasting to give me success in this endeavor. Uh, Jehoshaphat was a king uh, of Judah, and uh, he did a, a, had a, a similar thing. There was a time where there were some armies that were coming against uh, Judah, which was the southern tribes of, of all. The, the Israelites broke apart, is, is all you need to know. There's two different kingdoms. He's king of this southern kingdom, 
And uh, there's enemies that are coming up against them that are way stronger. He doesn't have any idea how they're going to be able to defeat these enemies. So what does he do? Well, Second Chronicles 20, 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Right? This is biblical fasting. They're, they're, they're coming together. They're seeking the Lord. They're abstaining uh, from, from eating. And they're crying out to God desperately to save them. And in this instance, God heard their prayers and delivered them from their enemies. I'll let you read the story yourself if you want to figure out how. Uh, we see this not only corporately, though, but also even on an individual level. Sometimes people will fast when they have a very serious need that they need to bring before the Lord. Uh, King David was an example of this. Uh, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, uh, he ended up getting her pregnant. That was part of what led to the necessity for him to try and cover it up with the murder plot. And she gave birth to this baby, and this baby ended up getting really, really sick. And so David, we see, ended up fasting for the child. This is what we see in 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 17. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. You see, David was absolutely desperate for God to come and hear his prayer to save this sick child that he had. Now, sadly, in this case, uh, the child still died. It doesn't have the same ending as the Esther story or the one with Jehoshaphat. In this case, the, the baby died. And I think that what happened with David actually shows us something that's important about fasting. Uh, when we make our earnest request before God, it is not some sort of magic ingredient that will automatically ensure success. It may be God's will to do something else, but we don't know. So it's appropriate for us to still come before him seriously with prayer and fasting. This was the attitude that David had. You know, who, who knows? We might see that, it, that God goes a different direction as he sees our earnest pleas. Uh, we may not, in David's case, where it was still set that this child was going to die. Um, but I love what Donald Whitney wrote in, in his book about spiritual disciplines. He said, fasting doesn't change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. I think that it adds a certain depth of seriousness to our requests as we bring them before God and even kind of does a work in our own hearts for that. And so I want to ask, like, do you have an important request that you really, really need to bring before the Lord for his help on? Maybe you have a personal matter in your life that it'd be beneficial for you to pray and fast. I know as a church, corporately, every year, we fast together um, for the incoming freshman class. Because this is, like a, this is an eternal uh, issue of, of significance, right? Like there are going to be thousands of new people moving into our community right across the street. And the vast majority of them do not have a relationship. And you know what? We in our own flesh are totally powerless to be able to have any sort of breakthrough there. Right? Like I believe that God wants to use us in mighty ways. God wants to bear fruit through us. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so sometimes I think it is beneficial, and that's why we do this as a church every summer, say like, we need to fast and cry out to God that he would hear us and, and, and save many of the people that are coming onto that campus. 
that many people who think that they're not going to have any sort of uh, interaction with God as they come to college would come and be shook by him. And so I've, I hope that you'll fast with us this week and calling out to God for that, and we're probably going to do it again as the school year gets closer as well. So coming before God with our requests and seeking his help, that's one reason for why we should fast. Another is for revelation. And by this, I mean seeking the Lord and his, his guidance, asking him to reveal his will to us in some matter. Sometimes we're faced with really big, important decisions that we need greater clarity and direction for. All right, we see an example of this when Paul and Barnabas needed to appoint leaders for these new churches that they were planting. We see this in Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You think about the work that Paul and Barnabas were doing. It was incredibly difficult. They're bringing the gospel into all of these places that have never even uh, heard the, uh, the good news of Jesus. People are coming to be saved. And they have to go on and keep planting new churches, and they have to trust somebody to be able to take care of all these new believers. How in the world can they know who they should be putting in positions of authority to be able to do that? That is a huge decision, because if they do poorly with that, the whole church might get led astray. And so what do they do? They pray and they fast, asking God to help guide them in this decision, and then what do they do? They release it to the Lord. They commend them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, whenever I have big decisions in my life, I try to make it a practice to fast and seek the Lord. Um, Cassie and I both fasted when we were considering dating each other. Um, I fasted when I was considering proposing uh, marriage to her. I shared some about this last week, but one of the biggest decisions I've ever made in my life was about uh, becoming a father, the decision to have a child. I fasted for a long time and, and sought the Lord's guidance about that. And I believe that God gave me great guidance and peace in all of those decisions. I had a lot more confidence walking into every one of those things after I knew that I had earnestly come before the Lord, seeking his will through prayer and fasting, uh, asking him to guide me in these kinds of decisions. So maybe you have something in your life that you really need guidance on. Uh, maybe it's something I already talked about, like entering a relationship, entering a marriage, having a child. Maybe it's a decision that you need to make about your career or changing your major. Um, whatever it is, I believe that fasting is a great tool that God has given us for when we need to seek his guidance on a particular matter. Third reason that we should fast is for repentance. And this is when we're seeking the Lord and his mercy. There are lots of times in the scriptures where we see fasting as a part of repentance in the scriptures. We already read about the people of Nineveh right, who had this, this fast that was so intense that they didn't even let the animals eat or drink. Um, God saw the, their genuine repentance, and he turned away from bringing the destruction that Jonah proclaimed. We see this in Jonah 3.10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You see, I don't think their fasting saved them but it was a genuine expression of genuine repentance. And I believe that that genuine repentance is why God didn't bring the calamity upon them. We see, in all likelihood, Paul fasting for a similar reason in his own life on a personal level. Uh, right after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, if you don't know, remember who Paul 
was before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee, and he would actually he was zealously persecuting the church. He even oversaw uh, the murder and jailing of Christians, and he was on his way up to a different city called Damascus to go try and persecute Christians up there. And on the road there, Jesus appeared to him and said, "Saul, Saul," that's what he was called at the time. Why are you persecuting me? And and he said, "Who are you, Lord?" He's like, "I'm, I'm Jesus, the, the one you've been persecuting." And so. Paul ended up going blind, he fell down, and his response here, in Acts 9.9, it says, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, we don't know for sure why it is that Paul didn't eat or drink for three days, but given the fact that he just learned that he had been in sin, overseeing the murder of Christians, and working against the very God that he thought he was serving, it would stand to reason that he probably felt horrible and wanted to fast, out of repentance. He likely felt absolutely awful about the things he had done, and I believe that this fast was expressing that. Now, there's something that is very important that I think needs to be said on this point of fasting in conjunction with repentance, and that is that our fasting does not uh, save us, okay? It's, it's, it's not something that kind of like adds an extra little bit of oomph into the way that God can forgive us. We cannot fall into the trap of thinking that fasting is some form of self-punishment that we must do uh, when we sin so that God will forgive us. Because I think that, that there's a temptation for us to think that way sometimes. Matter of fact, there, there's been a lot of temptations throughout church history to still not actually believe the gospel of grace, right? Where, where there's a um, records of people throughout church history that would whip themselves, called self-flagellation, beat themselves up, uh, try to do all these kind of things to punish themselves for their sins. And I want you to know, if you're a Christian, Jesus was already punished for your sins. Like, he was already beat up for you. You don't have to beat yourself up for it. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was taking every bit of punishment and soaking up every bit of wrath that, that is upon your sin. There is nothing extra that you need to do to fill up that work. All right? This is the good news of the gospel, that we are saved by God's grace and his grace alone if you put faith in Christ. Rather, fasting can be something that accompanies our genuine sorrow that we feel over sin. It's not a form of self-punishment that helps get us all the way to forgiveness. Rather, it's a way of powerfully and seriously expressing our sorrow for sin, much in the same way that tears might be. You see, God knows our hearts, but it's good for us to be able to express what's on our hearts in powerful ways. I think maybe if I illustrate this for you uh, in a different manner, it'll make a little bit more sense. Why is it that we love worship music so much? Right? Like we come in here every single Sunday and we sing. And I think for many of us, we know that there's something special about that that happens in our hearts. And here's the thing. We are singing stuff that we already know and believe on the inside. Like, there isn't really anything new about that. God knows what's already in our hearts. But there's something that's powerful about the way that we're expressing it through that song. Right? It, it, there's something about this powerful expression that even though some might be tempted to say that it's meaningless, since the heart's what matters and God already knows it, there's still something that even does a work in us as we express it in this new way. Sometimes the heart needs to express itself and fasting can be a way for the heart to express repentance over sin. And I believe God's call to repentance in Joel illustrates this. He said this in Joel 2, 12 to 13. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is compassionate, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. You see, here God is calling his people to repentance, and he tells them to fast, but notice that the focus of this passage is not really on the fast. It's on the heart, right? He says, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart. Tear your heart and not your garments. An expression sometimes people would do when they were in mourning, they'd tear their clothes. saying, I want you to tear your heart. I want you to come before me with a genuine sorrow in your heart. The weeping, the tears, the fasting, these are all just means of expressing that. So, I believe that there are times in our lives where we're experiencing great sorrow over our sin that I actually think it does us well to even be able to fast and feel the gravity of that and express the sorrow that we have over the sin that we've fallen into. And I actually think that God can bring some, some like, emotional healing to us through that. Another reason that we should seek the Lord in fasting is for relationship. This is seeking the Lord in his companionship. Now, this one is not nearly as explicitly clear in the scriptures, um, but I think that we see kind of hints of this in the life of a woman named Anna. Uh, we get very little about this woman, but she seems really, really cool. In uh, Luke 2, 36-38, they're the only three verses that we get on her in the Bible. But this is what we see. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At the very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is, we meet her when Jesus is born, right? And that's what she's excited about, and that's what she's speaking about. But you see this woman's life. It was a lifestyle of, of prayer and fasting in the temple. And do you think that that added depth to the relationship she had? I, I, I wish I could have just like met this and like sat and learned from her, right? She was 84 years old. And for the vast majority of her life, like what she's, she did was she prayed and she fasted in the temple. And I can't help but think that she had an extremely um, close relationship with the Lord with the Lord through this. And fasting, we only get three verses on her. And one of the few things we know about her is that fasting was a regular part of her life. I think that through this, she was probably coming to constantly realize and remember how God is actually her provider and the one that cares for her. Remember? She had a husband for how long? Seven years. That was it. And that time, who's your provider, especially if you're a woman? There, there isn't the, the idea of the working career woman, that's not really a thing. But yet here she is constantly remembering that God is her provider as she's in the temple with prayers and fasting. And I think that she was even learning on an experiential level that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Fasting can help us press closer into God and remember how we need him even more than we need the food that we rely upon daily. Finally, the last uh, reason I'm going to share with you today for why we would fast is reward and that's seeking the Lord and his blessing. Now, I was kind of hesitant to put this in there, right? Because like, I'm, I'm very against the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. I'm not trying to teach that at all. Uh, what convinced me to actually want to phrase this this way is because of the very words that Jesus himself gave. 
right? Now, if we go back to Matthew 6, we already read these verses, but I want to I take you back to that to see what Jesus said because as many times as I've read this, I've, I've never really focused on this last part of these verses. Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Whenever you fast, put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I don't know how I feel like I've kind of missed that. It's, it's, it's a major part of what he's saying there, but it's like there's a reward that comes with fasting. Now, he doesn't say exactly uh, what that reward is, okay? Um, but I, I would say that even as what we've walked through the scriptures here, there's already so many ways I could point out that are rewarding about fasting. Sometimes that reward might be the help that you get, was you brought your request before God, right? Like Esther and Jehoshaphat had when, when they were delivered from their trouble. Sometimes the reward might be the guidance that you were asking for. Like Paul and Barnabas, as they uh, asked the Lord to, to help them in selecting leaders for the churches. Sometimes it might simply be the relief of having some kind of outlet to express your grief and, and, and your sorrow over your sin as you're repenting. Sometimes it might be the growth in your closeness with God as you see him as your true provider and sustainer. And who knows, there might be some other kind of rewards that you experience through this that aren't mentioned here. I believe one of the other rewards that you have when you practice fasting is that you get to grow in self-control. Self-control is a wonderful blessing. It's actually listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. When Paul tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, the last thing mentioned is self-control. And fasting shows you that you have more control over your stomach than you may have thought that you do. Too many of us, I think, are ruled by our hunger and by our bodily desires. Getting hangry is a real thing. And it can cause us sometimes to mistreat people and even fall into sin. And I believe, I've at least seen this in my life, that fasting can help us to gain more mastery over our bodies and realize that we don't have to be controlled by all of our bodily desires as much as we may have thought that we do. Now, ultimately, in the end, yes, you still have to eat, right? Unless you're on one of those miraculous fasts. But, but you're learning to, to exercise greater control over your body. And this might even help you in other areas where you are lacking self-control. Another reward that I think comes from fasting is that you get to spend more time with God, uh, focusing on Him and doing His will. When you're cutting something out, like eating, it's bringing all sorts of other stuff into, uh, other time into your life, right? So now you don't have to worry about uh, preparing meals and eating meals. That gives you time to be able to do something else, like praying or serving or reading your Bible. Same if you were cutting out phone or internet or whatever else. And so it's, the idea of fasting is it's not just giving something up but it's giving you space to add something else in. And so I have a friend that, like, that used to uh, like to say, fasting is feasting, right? Like, yes, fasting is the removal of something, but it's also getting to feast on the Lord in some other way. And so not only do you have more time, but it might even save you some money that you can use to be able to bless with others. I know some people that um, will go for periods of time only eating rice and beans, and they'll take all the money that they saved from eating so cheaply and they'll give it to people that are experiencing hunger. So with all these things, man, I, I would say there's so many reasons for why we should be people that actually take up this practice that God has given us in the scriptures. There's a lot of really good reasons to exercise it. 
Uh, but before you start, there's a few things that I would encourage you to evaluate before you decide to, to go on a fast. And the first is that you would evaluate your life. Okay, are you honoring the Lord with the way that you live your life? God called out people in Isaiah 58 who were doing religious things like fasting, but they were full of sin in other areas of their lives. Don't think that fasting is some sort of magic tool that you can get uh, God to bless you if you have unrepentant sin in your life. The Lord is not going to accept that, that kind of a fast as something that honors him. Uh, if you want, I'm not going to read it with you here this morning, but if you want to, go to Isaiah 58, uh, 1 through 7. It's actually one of the longer passages on fasting that we have in the scriptures, where you can see that. So not only should we evaluate our lives to see if we have unrepentant sin that we need to, to repent of, but also evaluate your heart. Like, why is it that you're doing a fast? Jesus warned us against fasting to be seen by others. If you're doing this to be seen by others, forget about it because it's not something that's going to be pleasing to the Lord. When Jesus said that the hypocrites that, that make it obvious, he said they receive their reward in full. Okay, they're not, they're not being rewarded by the Father who sees this done in secret. Their reward is that certain people are going to look at them and think that they're holy. Now, that idea of secrecy and fasting, I, I think some people almost take that too far to where they get weird about it. Whereas it's, it's like, you know, you're all going out to lunch and the person's like, oh, I can't go. You're like, oh, why not? Uh, and they just like continue to refuse to tell you. I don't think that's what Jesus is necessarily getting at. Like, I think it's okay if you have a legitimate reason that you need to tell someone. But the idea is like, man, your fast is not really about other people seeing that this is something that you're doing. It's about you pressing into the Lord. And of course, that would be for an individual fast. A corporate fast is different, right? The kinds that we saw in Esther or that we, had, that we saw uh, Judah do with Jehoshaphat. Sometimes we're fasting together where we all know that we're fasting and, and that's okay, right? With the secrecy thing is about a private fast. But God can see straight through you. He knows whether you're genuine or not. He knows whether you're just going through the motions. And there were religious leaders in Israel that fasted regularly, but God was not impressed because he knew that their hearts weren't right. It says this in Zechariah 7, 5, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? You see, there were new fasts that some of the people had instituted while they were in exile, thinking they were doing something that was honoring the Lord, but in reality, it wasn't for him. And God knew that. So evaluate, is my heart actually in the right spot to where I want to pass into him? I would also say you need to evaluate your mind. How is this fast going to affect you mentally? Uh, I mainly say this because I know that in our society, a lot of people struggle uh, with disordered eating. Um, I know this is a very, 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 very common thing. And I think that you need to be serious in thinking about if I go for a period of time where I'm abstaining from food, what is that going to do to me mentally? You really need to check, like, how is my thinking even being wired? Am I using fasting as an excuse to starve myself and go back into an eating disorder that I may have struggled with, or am I doing fasting for the right reasons in a way where I'm actually trying to grow closer to the Lord? I think you need to be really honest with yourself and trying to figure that out. If you're at a spot where, where an eating disorder is something that you're still like really struggling or processing through, or, or you, you kind of can sense, man, I'm trying to kind of use this, this biblical reason of fasting as an excuse to cover up an eating disorder and actually let myself engage with that, then I would say that maybe fasting from food is not the best idea for you. 
All right, you, you need to, to press in the Lord with that. You need to speak with the people in your life that, that, that are close with you. Um, but like I said, there's other things that you can fast from as well. You know, you, you can fast from your phone. You can fast from social media. You can uh, fast from all sorts of other things that might be a better option if this is not something that you're going to be in a good headspace to be able to do right now. Um, remember that God is the goal, not the fasting. The fasting is only valuable if it's something that actually brings us closer to him. So if it's something that instead contributes to a misplaced identity from an eating disorder, then it's not achieving its purpose. All right, and the last thing that I would say, this is just a super practical one, is evaluate your body. And by this I mean, um, if you have a physical condition that makes long fasts difficult, like, you, you need to take that into account, right? So if you're diabetic, for example, your, pro- your fasting window is probably going to be very limited <laughs> in what you're able to do. That's kind of a common sense thing, but I feel like it's still worth saying. If you're struggling with hypoglycemia or, you know, something like that, you need to uh, make sure medically that you're in a good spot to, to be able to um, do something like this. But even if you are in a, a fine spot where you don't have any of those kind of conditions and fasting is something you've never done before, my advice to you would be, like, take it easy at the beginning, okay? If, you've, if you're someone who's pretty much never missed a meal, don't think that you're immediately going to go 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 on a fast for a week. You're probably going to really struggle with that. What I would encourage you to do is say, all right, I'm going to work on fasting for 24 hours. You know, I think that that can be a great starting period sometimes for people. Um, you know, maybe, maybe even just I'm going to fast between two different meals. I'll eat dinner one night, I'll skip breakfast, lunch, and I'll eat dinner the next night. Uh, something like that. that. That can be a good way to kind of ease yourself in. As you get more used to it, you might be able to extend those fasts longer and longer. Um, I would also say that uh, when you do break your fast, especially if it's been on the longer side, um, take it easy when you are reintroducing food as well, just on a practical note. Um, the longest fast I ever did was for, for four days, and uh, I went to a buffet immediately to break it. I'll just tell you that was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> I was in a lot of pain. So <laughs> take it easy in how you're, how you're reintroducing food if you've been away from it for a while, okay? Um, all sorts of stuff that you can find online about the practical things that you should do with your body in this, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Um, but in conclusion, um, I want to close by encouraging you to take hold of this ancient practice that our forefathers exercised in their pursuit of the Lord, to seek his help, his direction, his restoration as they repented, to seek intimacy with him and seek the reward that he gives through this process. And may our church and our campus be strengthened by this gift. I want to end with this uh, quote that I thought was really cool from a guy uh, named Arthur Wallace. He said, In giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete. She has thrown it down in some dark corner to rust, and there it has lain forgotten for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. May we be people that take hold of this, that press into God and use every tool that he's given us to be able to grow closer to him and to become more like him. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to move into time of musical worship. Um, God, I thank you uh, that you're with us, and I thank you that you uh, hear our prayers. I thank you that you've given us Um, lots of disciplines and practices that uh, we can engage in 
to even uh, just be people that get to know you more and that are transformed more uh, into your image. And so, Lord, as we uh, consider this idea of fasting, I pray that you'd guide us as a church in how to actually do this well, to have good hearts uh, in, in doing this, God, that our motives would be pure and clean and that our, our fast would be honoring to you, Lord, that our lives would be uh, free of sin. And, uh, yeah, God, we just pray that, that you would hear us as we cry out to you, especially this week, asking um, that you would move mightily in the people that are going to be coming onto this campus in the coming months. Lord, we want you to, to be moving in their hearts even right now. God, prepare people for the encounter uh, that they're going to have with you. Empower us, Lord, to be effective ambassadors for you. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.